Radio, and it's a pleasure to be able to express some of the thoughts that this guy who's done amazing homework on me oh, just asked me to do. Hey everybody, it's Adam Shartoff, your host of FilmWax Radio. It's Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. This is episode number 616 of the podcast. I did something very rare last week. I didn't post a show. FilmWax Radio went dark. It just didn't feel right to me to be posting while everybody out there in the world was literally putting, in many cases, putting their lives on the line by going out and protesting. I mean, just a remarkable time we're going what we're going through and in the surreal context of of coronavirus i myself was the armchair protester until this past weekend when uh, literally under my window there was a a, a march going by and i i ran i, I put on my sandals and I, I ran downstairs as quickly as i could get to the ground floor and and i chased after the end of the line uh, which was only about a couple of blocks before they stopped at a park right nearby where they had a rally, the rally. And I just stayed for that. And it was incredible. Just the most diverse group of people, including Hasidic Jews, Muslims, Asian people, Latinx, uh, you name it. Very encouraging. So I was glad to be finally to feel like I was participating. So I'm just saying, if you if you can do it safely, you should do it. You should do it. Be on the right side of history, for Pete's sake. One thing that really gets under my skin is when I, I read about people who, who write, uh, whether it's in social media or what have you, you know, how people, you know, should protest, you know, but in lawfully. As if they're not. Well, first of all, there are, uh, people are enraged, enraged. And, and so what are they supposed to do, apply for permits? No, this is, this is the, the moment. You grab it. You go out on the streets and you, you protest. You make noise. You get in the face of the establishment. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. You take risks, careful risks. Yes, of course. It stinks that there's other people that are taking advantage of the situation by committing acts of vandalism. But in the broader scheme of things, aren't they enraged as well? Just not taking out their rage in a constructive way. And then there maybe there's a third fraction of those that are trying to incite these things. I don't know. It's very possible. It's quite possible. Anyway, I'm just saying, go out and protest. You'll be glad you did. And by the way, most of you that, that interact with me, I know you have. You beat me to the punch, that's for sure. Okay, I didn't even plan to talk about any of this stuff, but I wanted to tell you, if you're a listener, why I took the week off. 
which is a rare occasion. I don't remember the last time I did it. I don't remember. But, uh, oh, I maybe it was the week my dad died. So maybe this wasn't, uh, maybe uh, this wasn't the first time in so long. This is a great episode. This is uh, somebody I've been chasing for years to come onto the podcast. That's not an exaggeration. In fact, I'm just looking up uh, Allison Anders on my in my email because uh, I want to see how far back how far back I was uh, emailing with her. So it, it appears that my first email went out to her in September of 2015. I didn't. I thought it went back even further. But okay, I've been chasing her for five years, and and about a month ago she came on and did the show. So thank you, Allison Anders. You know, she is um, a lovely person. I've been a fan of her films for years. She started... Well, we're going to hear her talk about it, so I'm not going to go into great detail. I can only tell you that she started right out of film school where she was a production assistant working for Vin Vendors on the set of Paris, Texas. She talked her way into that job very skillfully, and she'll describe how. Her first film was called Border Radio. It's a real low-budge indie film, 1987. So right at the, oh my goodness, right at the beginning. You know, what what year did did Sex, Lies, and Videotape come out? Border Radio beat Sex, Lies, and Video by two years. She was right out there with uh, Spike, early Jarmish, early Hal Hartley early Susan Seidelman. Yeah. Gas Food Lodging would come out in 1992, and it's just won her tons of awards and nominations. It was a huge hit for her. Starring Brooke Adams, a Film Wax Radio friend who came on the show last year. She went on to do Mi Vida Loca, another hit. In 1995, she would direct one of the segments of Four Rooms, with, uh, along with Alexander Rockwell, another friend of the podcast. In 1996, Grace of My Heart. I cannot believe that it is 24 years ago when that film came out. One of my favorite films with John Turturro, who has done the show, and starring Ileana Douglas, who I will be having on the podcast shortly. By the way, I've had other reasons why I was in touch with Ileana recently, but I can tell you that having Allison Anders on the podcast really helped that that along. So this is good timing. Since uh, this enormous hit, Grace of My Heart, there's been any number of films and episodic television that Allison has directed, produced, or written. It's been in my in my mind to have Allison Anders on the podcast almost since I started. So it is with my great, great pleasure that uh, I now bring you my conversation with the filmmaker, the artist, Ms. Allison Anders, here on Film Wax Radio. God give me strength, vocal up, full version with pizzicato strings and bridge. Thank you. 
Also checking out your your the wall behind you. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, All right, so I'm I'm also audio recording, so I'll record for audio okay. purposes only. Okay. Okay, great, great. I'm so grateful that uh, well, I'm grateful for you to finally schedule this with me, and um, also grateful for in all this madness that at least Zoom record Zoom. This thing has become now. <laughs> well, for only we had all invested in Zoom. Oh, right, of course. Right? Yeah, exactly. Instead of the, so incredible. Yeah, that? it's been great. Good. It's been uh, great. Well, it's good too because for me, it's like now it's become part of the culture so much that people aren't going to be um, as, I don't know, like not phobic, but you know, it's like some people just don't want to bother with a new technology or a new thing. But this has been, a, in a way, will save me a lot of frustration and time because I can do this now regularly, more more frequently. We've, right, uh, totally, uh, totally. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so anyway, thank you very much. I bet I was able to spend. Uh -huh. I, was, I was able to uh, spend some time in the last few days rewatching. So that was also a nice um, sort of byproduct of doing this. I was able to. Great, great. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're having a little, there's a little delay I'm experiencing. So yeah, I know, I'm noticing that. Yeah, oh well. I don't know, anyway. Because hmm. so, you're, you're- try, Should I try again? Okay. Yeah, let's we can just see how it goes. I don't wanna make too much of it if we don't have to. Anyway, so yeah, so I was uh, re-watching and um, I didn't realize how long it had been since I'd seen some of them. Uh, so it was really great to, uh, to, to see some of them again and realize how many, all these wonderful films, but also I've had, just to start off, quite a few people that you've worked with either, you know, do this or I've had some sort of uh, interaction with, uh, with them before. Uh, whereas my, I kept okay. a little, sorry? One second, I'm just trying to find. I didn't say anything. Oh, I'm trying to find my notes. I did, uh, here it is. Okay, so, oh well, like John Turturro and um, Lily Taylor and Tim Roth and Alexander Rockwell and Valeria Galina, just, and Josh Leonard even, and I know some of these people that were supporting roles back in the, uh, yeah. in the days are now out there doing 
major films or creative types of uh, projects on their own. So, do, so actually, is it okay just to kind of go anywhere with this or do you have like thoughts about yeah, it? Yeah, sure. Okay, thank you. No, you need to leave me because I can talk about anything, so. Thank you. All right, so <laughs> one thing is, I, I, you grew up in, in Kentucky, correct? Right. Uh -huh. so, uh -huh. Where did your origin story, and how did it end up taking you to making, being a filmmaker, or taking you to UCLA? Well, uh, yeah, I grew up in a small town in, in Kentucky, Ashland, Kentucky. And um, the thing about Kentucky is uh, there are, um, it's quite rich with storytelling. Um, and, and with music as well, but uh, storytelling and music kind of uh, dominate Kentucky. Um, there's some great authors that have come from there. Um, there's some really great filmmakers and some great actors, um, but, uh, and some amazing musicians that came from, you know, in particular, Eastern Kentucky. And, um, which is where I grew up. And uh, so um, eventually through a whole series of things, we were constantly on the move and uh, we ended up moving to LA. And, but it took me a long time to decide to study film and go to UCLA. Um, I was studying other things and I became, I started writing when I was an adolescent. Okay. And um, writing poetry and short stories. Right. And then, uh, and then um, I thought that I would enter UCLA as a screenwriter. And, um, and once I discovered that I would have to also make a film, I was like, oh, that's good. Because I don't want some, let's see if I like making films, because I don't want some director coming along and changing my script. You know, so um, that idea of authorship was important from the beginning. So uh, once I made my first movie, I was pretty hooked. So yeah, from there, I just started to uh, pursue that as sure. a great way to be able to tell stories and use music yes. at the same time, which was really- Right, right, right. Anybody who knows your films knows music is always a central theme in all of your stories but in your student days you were were made two two or three very close connections two very close friends and collaborators right in kurt voss and dean lent correct yes yes well kurt and i met uh met before ucla and then we both got into ucla film school which was kind of wild and then uh from there we met dean and then the three of us um worked on each other's short films at UCLA, and then uh, we started making our feature together, Border Radio, while still at UCLA. Were you already, from, before you started at UCLA, were you already familiar with Vim's work and vendors, or was that just like part of your education? You discovered him at school. Oh, no. I, uh, I discovered him before UCLA. In fact, he even sent me a congratulations postcard when I got accepted to UCLA Film School. Um, I, I, I was already on the path 
towards studying film. I was at uh, LA Valley College, which was a junior college out in, is a junior college out in uh, the Valley. And um, that's where Kurt Voss and I met. I see. And, um, and we went and saw his movies together and um, I became really obsessed with them. I was just completely in love with his uh, filmmaking. So uh, from there I started writing him letters and uh, yeah. eventually went to work on Paris, Texas to study right. under him. Yeah, right, I, I know the story, but I just, you know, for, I just love hearing you tell it because it's like, um, it must have been just this, yeah. just this sort of dream come true for you who, you were writing him letters like regularly, correct? You like almost weekly, you were writing these long le letters to him about anything that was on your yeah. mind. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Where was he? Exactly. He and and he, he, let, uh, he was living in New York. Oh, okay. Damn. He was living in New York at the time. Damn, I should have, if I had only known. That's where I grew up and where I am. <laughs> yeah, he actually lived there quite a while. He lived there for a few years. And he also lived in LA for a while. And I, that was before I was following his work. So, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, and, then, and then after Paris, Texas, he went back to Germany and that was it. Mm. He really pretty much stayed. Which, yeah, which is weird because he's, since he's credited for being one of the major new, what did they call the movement of like new, it's new almost German like cinema. new German cinema, but he was making those movies while also in, in, in America? No, no, he, he lived in Germany and then he came here to do, um, Paris, uh, Hammett oh, Ham for, oh. um, Zotra. That's right. And then, um, and then he, uh, did, uh, and then, then I believe after that he went back to Europe, made um, maybe to Paris. He made in Portugal and here in LA, um, the state of things. And then he made Paris, Texas. So yeah, he made all those movies prior to Hammett in Germany. So by the time you got to school, you already sort of had at least a, a um, correspondence going with, with vendors, right? And uh, then you had gotten a, gr a major grant, correct? Well, so, no, it was uh, a. It was a. Um, it was not a major grant, but I got a grant to uh, to, which I I applied for, saying that he invited me to study under him on Paris, Texas. He had not done that, oh. <laughs> but, I, but I won the grant. And so then I told him, hey, I won this grant. And he said, congratulations. And I said, it's to study under you on Paris, Texas. So he was like, oh, God, well, I guess you have to come. Yeah. So, um, so I went, yeah. <laughs> but what, did you make that part? Uh, here's the part I wasn't clear about. Did you actually make that up? Did, uh, or did you, was that actually somehow in the uh, sort of uh, the, the part, as part of the grant? Or uh, does it make sense? What do you mean? Well, you, you know, I applied for the grant. The grant was a real grant. I applied for the grant, sure. said that he had invited me. He had not. Oh, okay. Now he I understand. didn't know anything about it. He I didn't see. know anything. I see. So, um, so they thought it was worthy, and so I got the grant, you know. 
I see you yeah. are sort of, I see you are manipulating yeah. both sides and just hoping for the best. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was brilliant. And it worked out. <laughs> it sure did. That was really, really smart. In fact, you, good for you. Uh, well, that's what it takes, doesn't it? I mean, that kind of enterprising, quote unquote, enterprising uh, approach, I suppose, especially when you're just starting. Right? Uh, did you? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty resourceful back then. Yeah. And, and, and you also uh, managed to get Kurt and uh, Dean also production assistant jobs. On, well, uh, not Kurt, but Dean, oh. Dean came along and my friend Scott Kirby also came along. They okay. both applied for the grants and then they came on to Paris, Texas as well. And Maybe. then Scott Kirby went on to work on uh, a bunch of Vim's movies. He worked on uh, um, uh, Wings of Desire and he worked on, uh, I believe, Till the End of the Earth, Till the End of the World. To the end of the world, yeah. Yeah. Um, just, um, yeah. Is there anybody else of note in your class at the time in, at UCLA? Oh, yeah. Um, some of the filmmakers, uh, Nina Mankis. Um, wow. Uh, Alex Cox was just leaving. Mm -hmm. He and uh, also um, Abby Wool were just leaving UCLA at the point that we arrived. Um, Peter McCarthy, who produced Repo Man, and um, he had just left. Um, also, uh, uh, Alexander Payne, big fan of Border Radio at the time. He had just, oh. uh, he, was, he was part. Todd Holland, the great, um, you know, Gary Shandling, uh, Malcolm in the Middle, that, that guy. He uh, he was at UCLA at the time. Yeah, we had we had a bunch of we had some superstars for sure. Wow, it's almost like uh, what was happening. Yeah, over, almost like what was happening over at Purchase, where you had that. Oh, whole, uh huh. Where you had that whole group. Also, yeah. Probably roughly, I'm guessing maybe a, roughly around the same time. Anyway, so you worked on on Paris, Texas. It had to have been just a, the most incredible experience for for you just and the amount of talent uh, on that film. And it, of course, is, you know, just gone on to be such an enormous cult film. Right. But, and I, as much as, and your own, but I'm kind of doing, trying to stick somewhat chronologically. I don't know why, but, and, but tell just about the uh, poem, that anecdote about the, the poem, because as you mentioned before, you had written uh, a lot of poetry as a young, as a young girl, I guess, or as, a, as an, right, an aspiring writer. And then it came right. up that you, you actually refresh my memory. There was a case on the set where you said that uh, you had written this poem and it might actually help. Well, I, I, I didn't know it could help at all. I just, uh, Vim had given me the task, uh, which was this enormous privilege to run lines with Harry Dean Stanton. So, um, so I would go to Harry's trailer and run his lines with him. And, uh, and so um, one day he and Dean Stockwell were talking about, Harry was frustrated because he wasn't sure what, what his approach should be toward um, when he wasn't speaking. Because he said, I don't know what this guy is thinking and I don't know 
if he's thinking anything, I don't know what's going on inside of him. So he didn't quite uh, feel confident about his approach. And he said, I mean, is he catatonic or what? And I said, oh, I, I've been catatonic and I wrote a poem about it. And he and Dean Stockwell were like, what? So, um, so Dean Stockwell said, honey, would you happen to have that poem here? And I weirdly had it with me. I don't know why. So, um, so I uh, got it from my room and uh, brought it back. And, uh, and so they just basically grilled me on that, on that experience. And and so for years and years and years, Harry always said, there was a girl working on the film, or he'd tell me, I tell people that was, you know, that was my approach to that, to that part of that character, you know, was what you had given to me. So I, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, I was just, this is the first time I had ever really been around professional actors ever. So, um, but what it did for me was it made me realize that my own personal experience could influence an actor's performance. And, um, and that kind of information was helpful to him. But it had to come from him. Couldn't come from me feeding that information. And it's funny, because I think about that to this day. It's like, it's not my place to... Mm. To, to interfere with an actor's process for building their character. But if they ask me for information, I'll give it, you know? So um, even if it's information on backstory of the character, I'm not gonna be free flowing with that until the actor asks for it. You know, when the actor asks for it, then I'm like, oh, they, they need that. You know, this might be helpful for them. But I don't like to interfere with whatever they're doing to put that character together. Right, I understand. I wonder if, um, just, I don't, my memory wouldn't probably fill in enough blanks for me to remember if, I mean, at both uh, those particular actors, Dean and Harry Dean Stanton, of course, came out as sort of the tail end of the studio system, you know, and directors probably were more, I don't know, it was more, maybe it was more in the script, or I don't know, the, the, the European sensibilities that Vin Vendors brought to that film, I wonder if, um, maybe they just felt a little bit lost in that, you know, new type of film set. I don't know. Well, and also I, you know, I sometimes feel a little embarrassed about the whole exchange because I think, oh God, Vim was probably, you know, what if Vim was deliberately not telling Harry what was going oh, on? Yeah, you're sabotaging You know, him. to get that performance yeah. that he wanted. And here I am just, you know, Oh, here, this is why, you know, giving all this information that maybe Vim wouldn't have wanted him to have, you know? So, so it's interesting, you know, it's, um, cause of course, yeah, European filmmakers worked entirely differently than, you know, Americans did at that point. You know, Americans would give a whole shit ton of information yeah, to right. actors for the yeah. most part. Whereas, right. you know, I mean, uh, Godard would deliberately trick his actors, you know? to getting certain reactions and certain responses. So, you know, um, sometimes I go, oh, maybe Vim actually wanted Harry in this pure state. And here I was giving him more of a foundation, but I was just, 
I was just, you know, I wasn't trying to influence his performance. I was just having a conversation, as it were. So it was yeah. nice to me. I got tons out of it later because in retrospect, I was like, oh, that was interesting. You know, that was my first encounter with an actor needing some information. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah, I, would, I guess he never found out if, if uh, Vim heard about this or not. I, he must have, of course, eventually, right? Because he was... Oh, he knows about it. Yeah, he knows. And sometimes he says, he, he even said, we did a, we did an interview together for a podcast for, um, for a talk house. And he was like, um, you know, he says, and Allison, I honestly don't think without you, Harry would have ever known his lines. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's all right. It's okay. But, you know, it's a t in retrospect, you know, I just think about that. And I'm like, oh, that was kind of, you know. So, yeah, because you I had, would never have over you, did you, you had already made Border Radio then prior to being. No. No. no, 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 I haven't made Border Radio yet. I'm just, I'm just screwing up left and right in terms of. The <laughs> it's all right. I, no, I, had, I, made, I know no, it all. I made my, uh, I made a short film. And then we come to see that. Okay. I made my first film at UCLA and then I went to Paris, Texas. And then when I came back, I made my second film, and then after that, the great, um, uh, well, they now call it L.A. Rebellion, uh, filmmaker B Billy Woodbury mm -hmm. saw my film and Kurt's and Dean's, and they all looked similar. Well, Dean had shot them all, and um, they had a certain uh, auteurist vibe, and they were all black and white. Right. And, um, and Billy worked in the tech office at UCLA, and he said, um, hey, I saw your guys' films, and uh, you need to make a feature, and I'm going to help you. And his film, Bless Their Little Hearts, is still one of my very favorite, all-time favorite movies. And, um, and that movie influenced us profoundly. And, um, and he did help us. He helped us get the equipment that we needed to make the movie. He came and saw the cuts. I mean, he was really a godsend to, uh, to Border Radio. And then Vim helped too. Vim gave, me, gave us you know, short ends of film to use. He gave us all kinds of stuff to, um, to help raise money to finish the movie. Posters and stuff like that. Boy, I wish I had a few of those now. Mm -hmm. that we sold, that he signed to get, you know, film out of the lab and that kind of thing. Well, I happen to have some uh, on, my, on my eBay page. I'm happy for you to buy if you want to. Oh, my God. Fantastic. No, I Excellent. Don't. Oh, seriously, send me a link. You know, if I'm only kidding. First of all, if I, if I really had it, I would give it to you. I'd be happy. <laughs> I would love that. So wait, so, so just to be clear, though, you, you made Border Radio first or you made a uh, I understand it was your first released feature, right? But you, other than a short or two, you hadn't made another feature yet. No, no, Border Radio was the first. Okay, yeah, that's why I assumed what you meant. So now that you had had sort of this experience on the set of, of Paris, Texas, and you had learned some things about your own personal story 
uh, or bring yourself into your own stories or, you know, um, perhaps as a director, even if it's not something you necessarily always verbalize to your actors, I, I just wonder when that started, because um, clearly the themes on your films come from your personal life and um, growing up where you did and at the time when you did, and they're so personal and be- and just so emotional. Mm, thank you. Um, well, uh, after I left UCLA, um, the, uh, uh, the guys that I ended up working on Gas Food Lodging with, Cineville, um, they came to me. I met one of the guys at, film, at UCLA. He wasn't in film school, but he was often hanging out watching movies there. And um, he and I, and um, he had seen Border Radio, seen everything I had ever done. I had written a screenplay um, called Lost Highway. It's not the David Lynch, obviously, right, but it was, um, it won the, the, the Nickel Fellowship and it won the Sam Goldwyn Award. And that helped me when I was leaving film school. I had a feature script that had won awards and I had a feature movie that had gone to film festivals. So, you know, I had something to show and, um, to make what, you know, to make a movie. So, um, so Cineville uh, came to me with a book and a first draft of a script that would eventually become Gas Food Lodging. Mm -hmm. And I kind of took the premise and then just made it deeply personal, changed the location, put it in New Mexico, um, and then made it really, you know, based on my own personal experience of being raised by a single mom and, uh, and being a single mom myself. So, um, so that was how that sort of started to come to pass, you mm-hmm. know, that I started putting more personal stuff. Well, that had already started happening in Lost Highway in the screenplay that I wrote that won the awards because and it was funny because at the time people were like, oh, this is just so real. And the, the female character is so strong and she seems like a real woman. And I thought, wow, I guess this is really unusual, you know, for, for, for them to come across something like this because I was just putting my own personal experiences in it. So, um, so by the time that Gas Food Lodging came, I kind of started to realize I didn't know that it was a kind of superpower, as they would say now, but I, I knew it was the way that it was the most satisfying for me to write, you know, was to make it personal and write that way. And I've been influenced heavily by confessional singer-songwriters, confessional poets, Sylvia Plath, Ann Sexton. I mean, that's the world I grew up in, Joni Mitchell's, you know, confessional records and you know, Carly Simon. Yes, exactly. So, you know, all of that, like, influenced all of those, you know, inf- you know, they empowered me to, to just be myself right. in my work, you know? And, yeah. And the L.A. terrain really obviously influenced your aesthetic quite a bit, too. Or maybe it was the Southwest. I'm not sure. Uh, but, yeah. it, you know. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I find LA and the desert 
uh, even though I don't love the desert, it's not my, it's not my scene. Like I, I enjoy it for like a day or two and then I'm like, all right, I got to get out of here. But, um, but I find that those, um, you know, the Southwest deserts, uh, the beach, you know, I find all of that very um, inspiring. Open space. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Still- and actually, the place where we ended up shooting Gas Food Lodging, we had Deming, New Mexico, we had been through there, Dean Lent and I, and, um, and Vim's uh, stepson, um, Patrick Kreutzer. We had t- driven Vim's uh, minivan out from Los Angeles to Texas. So um, we actually drove through Deming, New Mexico on our way to Paris, Texas. And on the way back, Vim shot some, uh, shot a little bit of neon signage and stuff in, um, that's, that's in Paris, Texas, in Deming. So it was amazing to end up back in Deming and go, oh, this is, this is the place. And then to realize, oh, we were, we were here on Paris, Texas. Uh, you know, I, I realized I, when I, even, I didn't want to focus entirely on Jim Vendor's movie before, but I did want you to at least, if you had any thoughts about, since uh, he had that posse, that this whole sort of contingent of people that just incredible talent that seemed to circle around him, including Claire Denis at the time. Who was oh, his- she, was, she was my boss. Yeah. Claire was my boss. So it was funny, she, she would talk about, she'd be like, I am the hen and you are my little chickens, you know, and, so, <laughs> and she was very maternal, very protective. Oh, she was. Oh yeah. She was hilarious too. She was so funny and just, just the most gorgeous and tireless worker. I mean, at one point I go, Claire, cause I had never known what a first AD does. And I was like, Claire, you're really, you know, you really have the hardest job. And she was like, oh no, Vim has the hardest job. <laughs> and I thought, I think at first AD, I, I mean, I'm always kind of amazed by how much they have to do. And I wonder, I need to ask her, because I wonder if she thinks now that being a director's harder or being a first AD is harder. I'm sure she would say being a first AD is harder. Has she made films? I'm not aware. <laughs> <laughs> actually i i you know before i started uh, you know i was a little nervous starting off because uh i don't know i built up this conversation in my head for some reason and meeting you but i was sort of rattling off various people that you have you have cast or crewed, mm. up, crewed up with that i had on the podcast and i left off claire denis who, who i was a nervous wreck to talk to because i you know she's so intense but it turns out she was just lovely. And, oh, yeah. And, I, and I, I only wish, I, I, or I hope, to get her back on at some point. And also, Brooke Adams. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I was up, um, I was trying to remember. Oh, you know, it was one of those things where Facebook, uh, she, she friended me on Facebook. And I was like, why in the world is Brooke Adams friending me on Facebook? You know, I was just... But I was very thrilled about it. So I, I sent her a note at some point and I just said, look, I do this little thing, uh, you know, where I talk to people and, uh, you know, I've been a fan forever. Would you, would you consider doing it? Well, she, she and her husband, uh, 
some some unknown actor that apparently she 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 they live on the upper they live on the upper west side and she invited me it was a very snowy day like this last winter not this past one but the one before and i went to their apartment and we had this wonderful wonderful long talk it was just fantastic so uh oh, so great yeah, just to, so uh, did you have a sense then after or making Border Radio in such a male-dominated industry? I mean, there was, I guess, a, a few peers. I'm, I mean, I, obviously, Claire had not, maybe she, uh, had she even made a film yet? Uh, not really. She, she, I think she had made some short films. Right. Yeah. But there was maybe, I'm, I'm thinking, a handful. I mean, certainly in Europe, there was Agnes, Varda. Right in Germany or Italy, uh, there was uh, some famous f female filmmakers. In the States, however, only a few, a living. And, and, well, there was a whole generation before. I mean, there there were actually tell me, yeah, there was there was a very solid generation before me. So there was Martha Coolidge, Joyce oh. Chopra. Okay. Um, there were there were there were women definitely making movies. Um, also, uh, of course, Catherine Bigelow right. was making movies before Betty when I was Gordon. in film school. Was Betty Gordon before you, or yes, yes. So, okay. so there were yeah. there was that earlier generation. Um, I think that actually, I just left film school when Catherine Bigelow made Near Dark, and um, so so there was. Mm -hmm. But you know, when I was in film school, we didn't. We honestly didn't, because there were a lot of us women making films, we weren't, at least I wasn't dissuaded by the fact that I was a woman doing it. It was, and I, I credit punk rock for that because mm. I know that there were bands where girls were playing instruments before the Runaways and before punk rock. There was Fanny and there were Bertha and there were a few bands, but but once punk rock happened, there were girls in every single, you know, they were in almost every band yeah. in play. Right. So to see girls on drums and girls as part of the scene, that was a really big deal that people don't quite understand unless you were there, but it was a big deal for girls to have electric guitars and, and be playing drums. And, and then suddenly there was an explosion of it. And so I, felt like that's what was going to happen with women directors that suddenly mm. we were here we were here and there were tons of us right and um little did i realize that we actually had a bit of a harder path i don't think that anybody uh there's a lot of reasons for that i don't think that it was utterly um you know, I don't want to say it was totally misogyny because I think that we had open access at the time that I came in. You know, we were certainly, you know, Sundance was early, early supporter of women filmmakers. Martha Coolidge won the very first top prize at Sundance for her film, uh, Not a Pretty Picture. The year that I went with Gas Food Lodging, um, it opened with a Nora Ephron movie. So... You know, Sundance was always there were there were elements in place all, always supporting women. So um, at that time, at that time, we were supported in the independent film world 
quite healthily. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons I can go into about why it became more difficult as time went on, but you know, it just, uh, I, so I, I was never, I was never daunted by being a female, you know, I was always like, oh no, it's, it's open, it's open to us all now. You know, it's, it's only later that I was like, oh, now it's getting really hard, you know, so, um, and now it's somewhere, I don't even know where it's at now. It's in a weird <laughs> state. It's in such a weird state. Yeah, we're in a very weird state. It infuriates me. There's more women directors, and yet it's more infuriating than ever. You know, so it's because it's the the you know the fact that only one woman has won an Academy Award for Best Director. You know, it's just um, it still just blows my mind. After uh, all time. Yeah, um, I, it's astonishing actually. In New York. At the roughly around that time, a lot of there was a, that downtown scene, uh, the no wave, yeah. or whatever, you know, which was kind yeah. of running sort of concurrently, maybe slightly Absolutely. earlier. Yeah, Absolutely. and the, the thing with them was, and this is where I thought you were almost going to go because you brought up the punk rock aspect oh, of, yeah. of that you were very, or at least felt a sistership with, if not felt part of, uh, that that those guys like the you know the John Luries and the Steve Buscemi and, and uh, I spoke, you know, so many others coming from that time, including, uh, I guess, also Betty Gordon and uh, Beth B and all these filmmakers, but they were also artists and they were musicians. So there was a kind of a whole scene going on right. where, right. you know, it was, if, if, you know, since they were also maybe in a band at the same time or they were painting and doing gallery shows in, you know, maybe burnt out <laughs> East Village uh, storefronts, I don't know. Uh, but but it, it seems like maybe there was less of, a, it was like less of an impact uh, that, that, you know, misogyny, I'm not sure what to call it, but certainly where they were, women were largely marginalized uh, in the mainstream. Right. But, you know, I don't know if you felt any kind of kinship with that movement at the time. Well, absolutely. I mean, especially Susan Seidelman. Because yeah, I was going to bring her up. Her. Yeah. The Reigns and and then of course desperately seeking Susan was who and so shared one of your regular actors right Roseanne Arquette. Oh yeah yeah yeah. So that was uh, that was fantastic. You know that she she was a she was a real um, guidepost for me. I'm sure you and worked for her. And the way that she you know did exactly what I was concurrently doing, which was you know casting musicians as actors and you know um well when was when was desperately seeking susan what year was that was that 86 something like that sounds about right yeah so it was about the, about the same time yeah so yeah i was really uh i was really uh influenced by her no doubt about it and then also um uh, you know, Jarmish was doing Stranger Than Paradise at the same time we were doing uh, that we were doing um, Border Radio. So it's very the the similarities are really interesting because it's it's almost like an East Coast West Coast version of similar kinds of stories. You know? Yeah, it was in a biggie and black kind of a friendly rivalry. <laughs> Actually, I don't think there was a rivalry in this case. No, <laughs> no rivalry. <laughs> 
guys, you guys were. I was thinking of the Tupac. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. You know, but they major. I grew up in New York City, but very influenced by what was going on on the West Coast as well in terms of film. And uh -huh. I remember, uh, I grew up in a house where my parents were in love with Bergman and you know Fellini. They were they loved that type of stuff. So I grew up with that in the house and learning all these European filmmakers that my parents love so much and other types of films that, you know, my dad took me see like a Chinatown when I was way too inappropriately young to see it. Oh, to his yeah. credit, he did cover my eyes when Jack Nicholson, you know, uh, or rather when Roman oh, yeah. uh -huh. Jack Nicholson's nose because he was parenting me, you know. Yeah. But um, when I first discovered film, which is what I mean to say, when I really came to it on my own after school, these are the filmmakers and you guys were my first generation. That's why I was courting you so long because, you know, it's an incredible byproduct of doing this podcast for so many years is that, that I've actually been able to talk to this generation of filmmakers who really had an impact on me personally, you know? Because uh, I started really getting into the whole scene, and that's how I ended up going to see gas food, gas food lodging in, you know, the theater when it first came out. Was you know, uh, oh, great, yeah, and just that the aesthetic had such an impact on me. You know, this sort of, I don't know, the the spare soundtracks, the casting, all of these things. It was just so uh, new and refreshing what I was seeing going on. It you know, and when I rewatch it it brings me right back, you know, it's just a tremendous thing. Were there films before, I mean, you know, John Doe, of course, a uh, number of other musicians, as you mentioned, that you've cast uh, over the years in your film. Was that something that, just because you were so influenced by music, you thought, oh, I, I love the idea of bringing some of my favorite musicians or people like that I've met into my films, or was it an influence from other films, earlier films, where that's, because there is a history of, of that to some degree, Frank Sinatra, well, um, Elvis, to so many other things. Two things I'd say to that. One, one is A Hard Day's Night. Seeing that as a kid was yeah. completely life-changing. And, and seeing it many, many times. Um, and then the other thing was that um, with Border Radio, we knew that, you know, there was, there was some level at which I was a bit more mercenary than uh, Kurt and Dean, in that I thought, well, we're working with actors that are very limited experience anyways. And, and the one thing was that I did not want our movies ever to look like my movies ever mm -hmm. and Border Radio. I didn't want them to look like some of the movies that I saw in the film school where the, the acting was so odd and so stilted and so uh, horrifying that I just always wanted things to feel natural. So, um, so to, since our actors were fairly um, improvisational and new at this, I thought, well, why don't we fill it out with some musicians? And then we've got a little bit of publicity that we could get, oh. for, you know? We could get a little bit of, you know, maybe the LA Weekly will want to do a story about our movie because 
Very enterprising. With musicians in it. I also really just knew that Kurt, you know, he was my boyfriend at the time and he really loved uh, Chris D who was in um, a band called the Flesh Eaters. <clears throat> and um, I thought he would be great for our lead. And, uh, and so I thought that would be a nice thing if I could get Chris to be in our movie, that would be a nice thing to do for my boyfriend. You know, so, um, so from Chris D then came John Doe and came Dave Alvin and, so that's kind of how all that came together, you know, was um, through those kind of impulses. But yeah, I mean, I love watching uh, musicians as actors. I think that it brings, <clears throat> what I think that it brings to it is that musicians come with a persona already and they can work with their persona Mm -hmm. And then they can be kind of uh, um, then then if you put them in a scene with an actor, if you think about like John Doe and Lucinda Jenny together in Sugartown, you know um, John Doe, although he had been quite you know he had been an actor for quite a while at that point you know, she can work with him, you know, as an actress, and then he can loosen her up as a musician. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing that I think uh, is always a great play. Rosanna and John Taylor in the same movie, or, yeah. you know, really um, on and on down the line. I mean, I think it's always a fun thing. In uh, Things Behind the Sun, Kim Dickens' band were all musicians. They were all Red Cross. <laughs> No. She was so great. Oh my God. I know. She really pulls it off so well that she's a musician. And so, um, so yeah, so it always is interesting to me to see how the two work with each other. Things Behind the Sun, as a matter of fact, I was thinking as I was rewatching it, but it was not so easy to find that particular one. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's on. Oh, no, no, that wasn't hard to find. No, wait, no, it wasn't that one. I had the harder time with, with Sugar. With oh, one. yes, for sure. But I was thinking that sugar was it sugar uh, sugar town uh -huh. was that the one where I was thinking yeah I think that was the one where I thought this is sort of like an almond almost like an almond film oh because uh -huh, there's many stories going on yeah yeah so many multiple characters uh -huh. although you didn't have them speak over each other that much but uh, <laughs> or at the same time <laughs> uh, you didn't mic everybody I rather uh, but also I was thinking how Altman uses as you were talking, I was thinking how he also liked to use musicians a lot. He sure did. I mean, I just had Ronnie Blakely come up to my um, class to talk about Nashville. Oh. <clears throat> and she was a musician first. Before that movie, she was sure. a musician. And she was actually hired to write songs with Bashkin. And then uh, for, for the film. Mm -hmm. And then at some point they were like, you know, we think we want to cast you as Barbara Jean. And she hadn't acted before. So, which is amazing because Oscar nominated right. performance, you know, one of the great performances of all time. But that's why that, that, you know, her getting up on stage like that 
you know, to sing before the fans. I mean, she really, she had it just in her DNA how to do that. Yeah, clearly. That's very good. How did that class go? Great. Ronnie and did the students? Oh yeah, they love, they, oh, they, it went great. That's terrific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause you're, you're, you, you have a class, uh, you do every, like a quarter, what is it? How, how often? Yeah, I do one quarter a year. I teach one quarter a year. Yeah, and do you just line this up? Year, this year, I just happened to teach winter quarter yeah. and it shut oh, down right, right, right before yeah. my last day of class. So, kind of intense to think. And everybody's been okay. Your daughters, where do they live? Your, they you live near me. Yeah, do you get to see your grandchildren and everything, like drive-bys or anything? Uh, yeah. Exactly. Drive-bys with the grandkid. And uh, my I other see. grandchildren are in Texas. I see. Yeah, with my son. Oh, wow. That's got to be difficult for you. But not to yeah. Yeah, because they were going to come out here uh, for spring break. So that was... Oh, my... Uh, yeah, it's been very frustrating not to just put my arms around my son all the time. And he's in the next room. Amazing. <laughs> you know, he's Amazing. like in the bedroom. He just never comes out of his bedroom. That's all I mean to say. <laughs> <laughs> he's turning 16 on Thursday. And, uh, oh, uh, boy. Yeah, my granddaughter's turning eight. Yeah, the, the birthday's going to be tough. We're trying to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, for them, um, yeah. of course. Sure, sure. Well, you know what makes up for a lot for an eight-year-old? Lots of presents. Yes, that's for sure. That's true. You can, you can you can fix a lot with just a, a lot of press. <laughs> That's know? true. That's true. <laughs> Where were we though? Uh, and how are you on time? I want to respect your time also, just because. You know what? I should probably. Okay, we're almost. I could do probably another fifteen, twenty. Beautiful. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, of course, <clears throat> we could go. I mean, you know, it's not for a lack of of things to talk about. Certainly, for my, you know, what else I'm so thrilled about is about ten minutes ago, whatever connection problems were happening cleared up, and I. Oh yeah. Uh, no, because uh, for some reason, I don't know if it's it's not raining where you are, is it? You know what? It's about to rain. Oh, I see. Because yeah. uh, maybe the cloudiness, or whatever. Sometimes. Yeah, it I think that's right. That's what's happening. But right now it's really good. It's right there, rolling in. Yeah. Uh, well, it, well, I'm not. I'm not complaining because right now uh, you were synced up, and it was very, hard, very hard to get into a rhythm. I found. Yes. Yeah. My own personal. Well, we're yeah. all right. Let's see. Gas food lodging. Brooke Adams. So Brooke, uh, let me tell you just a little bit about Brooke. So Brooke and I met before gas food lodging, and. Uh, and once Gas Food Lodging, once we were casting, I was like, well, I'd really like to cast Brooke for this part. And, um, but then I suddenly got seized. Once I cast her, I was seized with panic because I was like, oh God. And I told her, I said, I'm actually really nervous about directing you because you've been directed by Terrence Malick and all these great directors. And right. she was like, I said, I mean, you have so much more experience than me. And she says, that's why it's going to be fine, because I'm going to help you. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. And she did. She was so fab. I mean, she was just so fabulous. I can't believe we haven't done anything together since, but I swear to God, we will. You we should. Will. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's so down to earth. So great. 
She's so oh, great. Yeah, and she's really down to earth. Um, um, just, just lovely. We, we really hit it off. I was a thrill to talk to her. Yeah. Now, I also love music and, you know, I was, I, I, I play, I'm playing back to playing all the time now that I'm sort of inside all the time. Yeah. So I'm getting my chops back, Allison. So good. <laughs> yeah. But whatever the reason, it happened again last night as I was watching Grace in My Heart. I know I saw it at least twice in the movie theaters because I remember going back to see it because I was just, I just, it's just such a subject. It's one of those subjects of mine that I'm so stuck on the whole Brill Building movement and oh, yeah. all those great songwriters. You know, it's just for me, it's, um, and I, in fact, they used to um, have regular press screenings in the Brill Building. I forget one of the press screening, you know, one of this projection companies or whatever, you know, they, uh -huh. they did. So I used to have to go in there for a period of time. It closed, but that was just a thrill to be walking into the Brill Building, you know. Yeah. And also, just coincidentally, I don't know if I mentioned this in my email, I think I may have, that I'm doing some work for this author right now. And she wrote a book on the Mankiewicz brothers, Joe and Herman. Uh-huh, uh-huh. She's a lovely person. Her name is Sydney Stern. And the book is really terrific. And I knew that Ileana's, Douglas's favorite film, or one of her favorite films, was about, all about Eve. Oh, uh-huh. So I helped to... Um, get this author on Ileana's podcast. Oh. That's happening actually uh, tomorrow. Oh, good. So I, was, I met, just mentioned to them that I was going to be talking to you. So now, you know, just, it's, it's a nice little coming together of yeah. serendipity, totally. anyway, you know. But she, and this, is it, I, I, she hadn't carried a film before. Right, yeah. And she wasn't a singer, obviously, and I know that, you know, it was dubbed, but um, where did that, that particular casting in? Again, another very, uh, another very, well, what would emerge as a very strong woman. Uh, right. In the lead, in the center of the film. But where did that casting come from? I mean, by then you may, I assume you were working with a casting director, obviously. Maybe they well, were. Well, uh, in that case, I, Ileana had come to see Gas Food Lodging at Sundance. Okay. And we met somewhat after that, a bit, a bit long. I mean, after Mi Vida Loca, I think we met um, through a series of of people helped uh, us to meet. And, um, and so uh, she was looking to do a project. Um, she didn't really know what she, she, she was, um, at the time Martin Scorsese had a deal at Universal mm -hmm. and would have done a project for her. He says, you've got to find a story and you got to find your director. And she found me. So, um, so what happened was, um, you know, we ran through a whole list of kind of possible things we could do together. But when I was at UCLA, I had wanted to do something about the Brill Building. And there was a, um, there was a great book out by Alan Betrock called um, The History of Girl Groups, I think was the name of it. And, um, and it's just this fantastic book. It had all these amazing pictures of those songwriting teams of Carol King and Jerry Goffin and sure. you know uh, Well and and um, you know Ellie Greenwich and all those amazing songwriting teams. 
and so Barry Mann and oh Cynthia uh, Wilde. Barry. So um, so I uh, I wanted to do something at the time about the Brill Building and a girl group like the Shangri-Las, but I couldn't, I didn't have the resources to do that in film school. So, um, so I thought, oh, I'll tuck that away in my head and then down the line, I'll, I'll try and make that somehow. So, you know, I was looking at Ileana one day and I just thought, oh my God, this could be like the Car a Carol King type story, you know? Yeah. And so, Oddly enough, I didn't even realize that two things. One was Marty Scorsese was really into the idea because he had tried to crack the Lieber and Stoller story and for some reason couldn't really crack it. So he was obsessed with that music. Um, Ileana told me that she and Marty met at the Brill Building. So that was the kind of incredible serendipity of it all. Right. And so from there, that, that kind of kismet always gets me going, you know? So I'm like, all right, well, this is the right track. So I like the idea of a, of a woman getting sidetracked and not able to use her own voice and to eventually use her voice, you know, that she's writing for other people and, you know, slowly starts to write stuff from her own personal experience. And um, so I you know, for me, it just became this field day to do all kinds of things that I wanted to do. Um, so uh, Quentin Tarantino had introduced me to Karen Rackman, music supervisor, because he, we were both single moms and had these little boys and he thought we should meet each other. And, um, and we, certainly did and became lifelong friends and so this was our first project together was grace in my heart and um and i i came up with this idea i said well since it's about songwriters i was thinking why don't we create new music put together these songwriting teams some from one era and from some from the era and some from the from now from the present day and let's hook them up to write songs together and I had like a list on two different columns and she looked at it and she like put her head down and she goes, Oh my God, that's such a great idea. And I'm going to kill you because it's going to be so much work. <laughs> right. So, so from there we started to, you know, just draw lines. Oh, how about this person with this person? How about this one with this person? And you know, that's how Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach, you know, were, they Did were on the list. And wait, you guys came up with that pairing? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. really? Oh, yeah. That's the first time they were ever together. And uh, did, they, did they give you a percentage of their uh, proceeds from the, uh, the song? Because that was a big hit. Not, no. No, they did not. <laughs> that doesn't no, I didn't get shit. doesn't seem right. I think that... Uh, I think you have a lawsuit here. We were the first to put them together, and it was Karen's idea. She says, "What about?" She looked at my columns, and she goes, "Oh, what about El What about Burt Bacharach and Elvis Costello?" What so I was just there? telling my daughter Tiffany, who's a great music supervisor, who learned in the trenches with Karen Rackman. Oh wow! I was just talking to her the other day about that phone call that I had with Bert, with uh, with Elvis, and Elvis was like. 
well, listen, I want to do this. I'm not trying to talk myself out of a job. He says, but why weren't, um, you know, to, to his phenomenal feminist perspective, he says, but I keep thinking, why am I being asked as a man? Why wasn't Laura Nero asked or, you know, you know, he mentioned a bunch of women and I go, you know what? That's awesome that you asked that. They've all been asked. And some of them have agreed and some of them are doing it. And in the case of Laura Nero, what we didn't know was she was sick at the time. Yeah, I was thinking she about died before She died before the project ever yeah. happened. Yeah. But it was amazing talking to her on the phone, you know, and just going through this with the prospect of like, oh my God, we might have Laura Nero. But, um, but that was incredible. So then once Bert knew that we had asked Laura Nero, he was like, okay, definitely. <laughs> I, want to, I want to work with Bert Bacharach. So, you know, that was really, really fun. And um, you know what, what we did was also Karen found uh, Larry Klein to be the producer of all the music. And Larry Klein brought in all these players who had played, they were the wrecking crew. They had played on all those right. records right. and right. they played on ours. And so, you know, one of the things that we would do was that Larry and I would go through the script and each place that there was a song, we would have like five songs that we thought the track should sound like. And we give those to the songwriting oh, reference team. reference points. Yeah, and they'd, they'd uh, take it from there. So, you know, it was, uh, well, God Give Me Strength was like, a, you know, it kind of both, both uh, Elvis and I had talked about getting it back to, um, you know, just getting Bert back to that kind of, um, work that he did in the in the mid 60s and there was also um a jimmy webb song that we referenced i don't want to hear it anymore it's like it kind of reminded us of that it it was a song that should have been recorded by dusty springfield you know that was the kind of thing that we thought lb uh, lynn's uh like tribute to do you have that album what's that do you have shelby lynn's tribute to dusty yeah, oh, I don't. Yeah, I need to get that. Yeah. Let me, uh, I'm going to, I want to send that to you. Okay, cool. Cool. <laughs> well, I just read her sister's amazing book. Oh, I haven't read it yet. But oh, it's fantastic. I've got it that? right here. That's so wow. funny. Wow, that's such a, Alison Moore? Yeah. Yeah. Good. A crazy coincidence. Uh, one of the best performers I've ever seen in my life is Shelby. Oh. Shelby's shows, I've gone to three or four over the years one of the greatest live performers I've ever seen. Just unbelievable oh, performer. That's uh, great. Two quick questions. I know we're gonna, I'm gonna get you off here in a couple of seconds, but I had, one thing is, it was very easy obviously to get my copy of great, of uh, also the um, Elvis ver and Burt version of, of Grace in My Heart. But as I was sitting, oh, yeah. I knew that, that Ileana was, you know, uh, lip syncing and just to watch her, her physicality, first of all, it was terrific. Mm. You know, her arms were like, right. And is like, so right. Tall as she is, but I was thinking, where is the recording of this singer? Oh I yes, I loved it. I, her voice. I'll send, I'll send that to you. I have that. You do. And um, 
there's a few other songs that are missing from that soundtrack. Yeah, I noticed. Too, that are really great. And I, I recently got those um, digitized. Hello. He's trying to print something. I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. I just, sorry, I had to, I'm busy right now. No, I was just teasing. Right. He came out of the room. I, I would, <laughs> he's how I never see you. Yeah, I would love those. Rec I love the her voice. Sure. I just loved her rendition of of God give me strength, you know. So that was it. Oh, I remember here we can we can end here and maybe one day we'll do a part two down the line if you want to. But my last question I guess is did Carol King did you ever talk to her? You know what? Never. And we had asked her to be involved and oh, she and, yeah. and she she uh she I think at the time she was busy putting together what became her show. But you know I went to meet Jerry Goffin, and Jerry Goffin uh, asked me all this. He was like, well, how did you know all of this stuff? How did you know this? How did you know that? How did?" And it was really personal stuff that's in the script. And I said, you know what? I just made that up. And he <laughs> said, well, Allison, this is my life. So either I'm going to be involved with this project or I'm going to sue you. So I said, excellent, I want you involved. <laughs> so that would, you mean, he, yeah. wrote, he wrote a song with, um, he wrote three songs. He wrote a song with, uh, with Los Lobos. He wrote a song with Larry Klein. And he wrote a song with his daughter and Carol's daughter, Louise Goffin. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, so I feel like Carol was in there, even though we didn't have her. Do you ever, but did, did you hear back maybe that she had seen it and had a response or reaction? To no, it? never did. And it's okay. It's yeah. all right. It's totally fine because, you know, it really wasn't her. You know, it wasn't her story. It was inspired by her. She was sort the of a catalyst. With, the same with Brian Wilson. It, he was not Brian Wilson, you know, it was inspired by, but it wasn't right. really and, Brian And the Phil Spector kind of uh, character, kind of. Yeah, he was sort of, he was more, in a way, he was more Don Kirshner, I guess, in a way. Oh, he was no. sort of, the, the, wig, the wig was Phil Spector. <laughs> That's right. And you do actually, well, not the later Phil Spector, but but you actually do refer to Phil Spector in the film, by the way. So That's right, yeah. It, it um, yeah, makes more sense that he was not. Uh, well, and the, and the one thing, the one amazing thing, we also make mention of Shadow Morton. Right. And, uh, Shadow Morton later contacted me and said, I'm so happy that you mentioned me. I was like, oh my God, are you kidding? So me and my daughter got to meet him. Guess where? We get to meet him at um, the Knitting Factory show of Mary Weiss of the Shangri-Las, My Girlhood Idol. Um, uh, by the way, those were also, she was a, the way that Mary Weiss delivered um, voiceover narration in the songs written by in Leader of the Pack and, you know, Out in the Streets and I Can Never Go Home Anymore completely influenced me cinematically. So, you know, that singer and those songs written by Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Berry there in the Brill Building influenced storytelling for me, as well as Paul McCartney's. Um, uh, female characters, you know, very strong female characters in 
Paul McCartney songs, Eleanor Rigby, Lady Lane. Madonna, you know. Um, Lane, was that a, a person or a place? No, that's a place, yeah. Um, also, uh, She's Leaving Home. I mean, he wrote great female characters. Sure. Story narrative characters. Right. So those all influenced me a lot. So, so yeah, so my daughter and I got to meet Shadow Morton at uh, Mary Weiss's concert, and she hadn't seen him in years and years and years. So it was amazing that through grace of my heart, through putting, putting his name in there, he saw the movie and knew that he was referenced. And I did see my, one of my favorite songwriters who's actually doing homes, like she goes on every week and does a recording on YouTube from her home is Sean Calvin, who's- uh, Oh yeah. I worked at Sony Music for 10 years. So she was on Columbia. Oh yeah. My entire span that I was there. So I, I was there for, you know, Sonny came home and all those wonderful, you know, records. Yes. God, what talent. Yeah, she's fantastic. What a brilliant, another brilliant songwriter. She's really great. And she came through Larry because she and Larry worked together. He produced uh, her records. And so, um, and then she's singing the Jerry Goffin, Louise Goffin song in the oh, movie. Oh, that's that song. Yeah. I mm -hmm. didn't realize that. Okay, very good. Mm -hmm. On camera. Yes, sitting on a rock. Uh-huh. At this, uh, Kibbutz, I think it was. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Listen, I, I, I'm, I, you know, uh, I'm just uh, blown away by your being so open and willing to go back and everything. And um, I, I always feel a little funny because, I mean, you're a very active director, doing a lot of episodic work right now, I know. And, um, um, uh, I, you know, I, but I, many like myself are hoping that maybe you will be able to collaborate. What, who did you say you wanted to collaborate with before you were, you mentioned somebody who you wanted to work with again. Um, oh, and, Brooke. Right, Brooke Adams, of course. I think- <laughs> We I gotta think, make our movie, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you know, while Gas Food Lodging 2 would be uh, um, too obvious a way to go, maybe yeah. a new story is fine, you know, but checking out on those characters, that's interesting. But yeah. that's another podcast. I, uh, anyway, thank you so much for that. Thank and you. I'll email you because I do. I'm going to send you this album because you are oh, going I love to love this. It's uh, honestly, it's such a beautiful homage to Dusty Springfield, and um, so I would I would love to send that to you. Fantastic! I'd love it. And make sure what was the singer who to sang all the who did all the recording for? Oh, Kristen Vigard. What's her name? Kristen Vigard. Vigard. Okay. I'm definitely interested because uh, I love those recordings. Or, you know, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. All right, enjoy the Bye. rest of the day. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Allison. Take care. Bye, dear. cup of coffee for starting all the day 
just a little love When the world is dawning Makes you wake up feeling good Things are coming your way This old world wouldn't be half as bad It wouldn't be half as sad If each and everybody had it Just a little love Or something extra to kind of see them through. Nothing turns a day on, really gets it dawning like a little bit of loving from some love and someone like you. We have Michael Stuhlbarg coming up on the show. The singer-songwriter Josh Rouse, who I've been wanting to have on the uh, show for a long time. Mark Cousins. Frank Santo Padre. The team behind a new independent film called Freeland. The documentary filmmaker Don Porter. And the actor Will Patton. And trust me, tons more. All coming up in uh, the next weeks here on your favorite podcast, Film Wax Radio. Thank you, and take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Until next time. Thank you.